When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond, Bond ATZ podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond ATZ podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Thank you for joining us for another episode. My name is Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And as always on the podcast, we will be taking a look through some of the creatives that help make the James Bond film. This is uh, letter B. I believe this is the final episode under the letter B. You'll all be glad to hear um, <laughs> until we move on to another special episode, which I cannot wait to get stuck into. But we'll talk more about that at the end of the podcast. I Very think. excited about this one. I'm actually planning ahead on this one thinking uh, i can't wait to get stuck into this research <laughs> but actually um before we talk about the special episode at the end we've got an episode to get through but how, how have you find this uh, this week's research because obviously just for anyone who doesn't listen hasn't listened before we, we spend a whole week researching our topics and sometimes it's easy sometimes it's a, it's a bit of a slog but how have you found it this week well i, I went in with this looking looking at the names thinking oh there's nothing juicy in there. You haven't got a, a John Barry or a Ken Adam, but it's pretty interesting. Once you start scratching beneath the surface, you get some good stories. Absolutely, there's some. It's, def- it's, it's definitely probably the the mix, most mixed bag we've we've done for a for a podcast. <clears throat> I think I think some of the other ones we've we've had people we've covered, and it's been a little bit. You know, you've had a musician and you've had an actor, but this one we've got quite a few in here, and a lot of them are, are lesser known people. So. When when I first looked at the list, I was thinking, "Is there going to be anything on these? What's what? How's it going to pan out?" But yeah, I think that actually works really well because when you're researching people that you don't know anything about or you, you've not really covered it in detail in, in in the past, it's a lot more interesting. Really, you're kind of learning new things constantly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess if we just a quick tease, we're, we're going to be talking about Robert Brown John, who uh, created titles for a couple of films, Jeremy Bullock an actor who appeared in a few James, different James Bond films. The lady from Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Wheatley, you to correct me on the, the name of this one. What was the name? Uh, well, I'm going to have to check it now just in case I got it wrong. Uh, Irma Bunt, played uh, by uh, Ilsa Stepat. That's it, yeah. We're going to be talking about Anthony Burgess. And Brendan, who's the writer that you're talking about? Jez Butterworth. Great. Um, and... To finish the episode off, we will have a little addendum because I think we got to a point in recording these podcasts and we realised there was a few names that we might have missed through A and B that we didn't want to ignore completely that we will cover at the end. It'll just be a little bit of um, just to look back at some interesting names that we might have missed, just in case you're wondering why we haven't covered them. Um, But shall we get on with the show? Let's do it. Let's go. B is for Brown John, Robert Brown John. 
Now, he is a, or was, an American graphic designer and quite a character, by all accounts. A bit of a 60s icon uh, in his time. Uh, and he was best known uh, in, in the context that we will be talking about for doing the title sequences for From Russia With Love and Goldfinger. Uh, he's known to his friends as BJ. So <laughs> nice. that, that, you'll like that one, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> You're not known to your friends as BJ, are you? Only to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, as I said, he's a graphic designer and we talked a lot um, in the Morris Binder section of that episode about obviously Morris Binder setting the template for the Bond titles. But actually, from digging into it, a lot of the the legacy that we have now is, is... through Robert Brown, John, quite interestingly, yeah. uh, and we'll come to that. But um, yeah, as, as I said, he, he's quite a character. He was born to British parents in 1925 in Newark, New Jersey. Um, his father died quite young and he had an aptitude for design. He went to, um, he studied in Brooklyn and then he went to the Institute of Design in Chicago. He was very into jazz music, uh, was friends with a lot of jazz musicians of the time, Charlie Parker, Billie Holiday. But because of that, he also had, let's just say, he, he had um, a proclivity for substances. It's <clears throat> a good way of putting it. Yeah. And that will pay, play a part um, throughout his his life and career. But he's got a, on his website, which uh, is still being run, I guess, by his friends and family. But he, he's described as it says throughout his career, Robert Brown John maintained a fast paced lifestyle which was integral to his art, his theory of graphic design, and his method of working. He ate, drank, and spoke extravagantly, demanded the highest wages, and socialised with rock stars and glamorous fashion designers, models, and actors. And actually, some amazing pictures of him in swinging 60s London, where he he eventually settled with, like, uh, Terence Stamp and Michael Caine and all those sorts of people. So he was very much, um, you know, a social butterfly. But after studying in Chicago, he, he moved to New York and, and sort of became a graphic designer there and, and did a lot of commercial campaigns for lots of different uh, companies, including Pepsi. And he also became a professor as well at the time, teaching about graphic design. He formed his own company with a couple of other uh, designers, one of them who was his mentor. Uh, but in uh, 1959, his company uh, ended and he moved, him and his family moved to London because he was offered the job of creative director at a company called J. Walter Thompson in London. Um, and so he moved there in 1960. He was very much into uh, typographic design. So like typography, fonts, that sort of things. And yeah, just a real character. You read a lot of stories uh, around him. And um, he definitely seems to be someone who was quite memorable to work with and to know. So it was obviously while working in London in the early 60s that he was approached by the uh, by Harry and, and Cubby to do the titles for From Russia With Love. Now, I'm not sure why Morris Binder didn't come back to do them after doing them for Dr. No. There seems to be very little information out there, but it seems to be that possibly Harry had fallen out with Morris Binder. Not, not entirely sure what happened. But um, Harry was the one to approach BJ to do it. Um, Trevor Bond, who had done the animations for Dr. No with Morris Binder, said, uh, Brown John, a graphic designer, had never made a film before in his life. So they said, you'd better work with Trevor Bond to help you out because he's just done the first one. And actually, the initial idea for the title sequence was actually around chess um, sequence, because I don't remember from Russia with Love. But after the title sequence, it goes. You see the the Spectre agent who is a, a, a chess grandmaster, and he like yes. that's yeah. part of that part of the whole scene, there, isn't it? Number five, I think his name is. But have you? I don't know if you watched the From Russia with Love titles recently. Um, no, I haven't. but but they're basically the title sequences. It's just title credits, and they're projected onto people, and that that's all it is. It's a very crude, mm-hmm. rudimentary technique of projecting the names of the people onto the bodies and it's a lot of women and that obviously that just sets the template for every james bond film okay oh, yeah and, and in dr no that didn't exist and that was that was morris binder so so that kind of thing that's yeah. that's yeah um brown john isn't it that's his creation Definitely. 
and I'm sure you'll come on to this, Brendan, but um, I think once they'd seen that, that that was then in Cubby and Harry's mind, that's what we want. And that's what Morris yeah. Binder was tasked to do after he came back after Gold Goldfinger. Um, so the idea for the... Um, actually, sorry, this is uh, from Robert Brandon's book. He said... On this type of film, the only themes to work with are, it seems to me, sex or violence. And I chose sex. Um, and so, yeah, that's what you get. So you get the, un- the the dancing ladies with the pro- uh, the lights being projected on them. And, and there's a, a few stories about where this idea came from. His assistant, BJ's assistant, said that, he, uh, that he'd become fascinated with images of still type on moving bodies because of people arriving late at his lectures and the projector being projected onto them as they walk past. Oh, There's nice. another story that said it was when he went to the cinema with his wife and she left the screening early and the projector was on her. But also, he, when he was studying graphic design, he was into this design called Maholi. And he did a lot of work where projecting light onto clouds, but also onto uh, moving objects and things like that. So it was obviously just percolating in his mind. But um, the story goes that when he went to present the idea to Cubby and Harry, this is from Alan Fletcher, one of um, uh, yeah Brown John's associates. He said, BJ set up, project- set up the projector. Everyone filed in and sat down. BJ took off the lights, took off his jacket and shirt and wiggled in front of the titles from the lit projector. <laughs> And he said, it would be just like this, only we'll have a pretty girl doing it. <laughs> Which, you know, that's it. I mean, uh, you can just see that, right? It's um, yeah. So from that idea, it actually turned out to be much more complicated than that to produce. Um, it was very difficult to make sure that the, the type was legible when they were projecting it. Um, and uh, it often would go out of focus as well. And apparently it was just a... Um, uh, yeah, just a technologically difficult task to do. BJ uh, said uh, the projector lens has no depth of focus and another major problem was therefore to make the dancer control her movements in a plane at right angles to the projector without destroying the illusion of dancing. The final result achieved what I now call instant opticals with everything done in the camera rather in the laboratory. They used three different um, dancers in the in the title sequence. One, Nadja Reagan, who actually played Karim Bey's mistress in the film, and she also popped up in Goldfinger as well. And also a, a lady called Julie Mendez as well. Um, it cost them 850 quid to do it, and it took three days to do it. Yeah, um, so that was it, yeah. Harry and Cubby were so impressed with the work, they actually wanted to set up an independent production company with Robert Brown John just to create... Uh, Bond titles and probably titles for other films but um, he actually declined Um, I think he just didn't want to be uh, pigeonholed as that guy yeah yeah, he was just too busy enjoying his life doing his own doing his own thing I think he said I'm lucky with Harry and Cubby because they just let me get on with it leave me alone and didn't ask and they don't ask questions so that set the template then for for Goldfinger yeah so interesting that he he didn't want to be pigeonholed because the titles for Goldfinger is arguably his most iconic work. And it's something that is not only iconic and celebrated within the world of Bond, but among amongst art design, graphic designers, and all different sorts of audiences. Or you just put it, put it into a search engine, Goldfinger titles, and people are studying it and there's like dipping into it and how important it was. So it's, it's, it really is iconic. So it basically develops on from the From Russia With Love credits, where it's the idea of projection again. But this time it really matches up with the the whole ethos and iconography of, of this film, especially with the use of gold. So these these this title design cost a bit more. It cost £5,000. And Brown John also did the posters for the film as well. In which probably the best posters in the whole of the the Bond series. I, I had one of those on on my wall when I was at university. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so iconic. Um, and the one with the hand, um, that's actually his hand, which ah. is pretty interesting. Um, so he painted his hand gold, and and he's projected uh, different characters onto that gold hand. So he he spoke about these gold uh, the titles for Goldfinger. He said I did decided to adopt a follow-up solution after From Russia With Love, continuing with the use of projection. But whereas From Russia With Love, I'd use still slides of type projected onto a moving dancer, 
I wanted now to try projecting moving images onto a still figure while the camera tracked and panned. So you see it in, in, the, in the titles where it's got all, all the main characters are, are there when scenes of the film are also projected. So he painted, he said, I painted a girl with gold makeup. So that's Margaret Nolan, who's actually in the film as well. Uh, had a gold bikini made for her and with a 100 amp back projection unit projecting moving images over her and filmed this in colour. And so the incredible thing about it as well is he used the contours of her body as sort of scenes with for the characters to, to use so that her, her knees at one point are like small mounds for Sean Connery to walk across. Uh, her mouth oh. acts as the a way to block the Aston Martin DB5 rotating registration plate so it's it's much more layered than his previous uh work on bond then of course you put it together with that the the theme tune of goldfinger it all comes together and it's it actually it makes their hairs stand up on on, even now just as soon as it kicks in the, the, the visuals the sound um and john barry said when i saw the final cut of the movie with Robert Brown John's wonderful titles, I thought it was total entertainment. So, I mean, that's a big compliment that it's worked yeah. with his music. You know, he's yeah. big support of that. So, yeah, it, it became the hallmark of Bond. So, whereas before, yeah, we, we credited Morris Binder, didn't we, and say that he, he created this. But without without BJ, we wouldn't have got, you know, which is still being used now. We wouldn't have got that. Yeah, no, that's completely true. And I, and and talking about Goldfinger, it's just making me desperately want to go and rewatch the title sequence mm-hmm. again because I remember bits of what you're saying there, but um, I've never really paid as I think I've probably said sat in a room chatting to maybe you Butler. Look at that, he's doing something with the contours there, but I've never mm-hmm. actively thought about it. I think I'll yeah, I'll have a look tonight and uh, rewatch that. But it yeah. is the perfect. Well, when we get, talk through the films, I'll probably bang on about how I think Goldfinger is the perfect film. But it's because of everything, isn't it? If they had a bad title sequence, it's it the, needs everything in there. It's the one where everything comes together, right? I mean, yeah. everyone yeah. will say this, you know, the titles, the song, the the stars, yeah. the bad guy, the cars, the gadgets. It just all yeah. comes together. They really were like hitting their stride with this film, right? And um, yeah. yeah. Even but from that from from Russia with love to that just the title sequence evolution like they just knew they wanted to up their game they just yeah it's incredible and I think the, the the other thing about Goldfinger as well which the titles work so well for is that if you take and it, when you work in marketing and, and and advertising if you you can't sum up a concept into a very simple format it doesn't work and that title sequence and the song just sums up that film perfectly. You know what it's about. You know what he's doing in it. And it's just perfect. But if you take another Bond film like like View to a Kill, you can't explain that in a title sequence. It's far too difficult. Mm. So that it just it's just so seamless and, and, and perfectly neat um, as, as sequences go. And that's why it's so easy to make posters of it and stuff because it's so, so clear. Absolutely. So unfortunately, after that, he fell out with Harry Saltzman, so he didn't work on any more Bond films, which is why Boris Binder came in and and took over. So that's a that's a shame because you know we could have got some more, and who knows where it the direction it would have gone in. Yeah. Um. So he also created the album cover for the Rolling Stones album, uh, nineteen sixty nine. Let it bleed. What's that look like? What's the cover look like? So it's um a phonograph, an antique phonograph. And then it's got a cake on top. It's yes. Probably, if you yes. remember that. Now I remember um, it, yeah. So it's got a different, yeah, it's got like a, there's a plate, a stack of records, a clock, pizza, a tyre. And so that that was created off the, their working title for the album was Automatic Changer. So he created that. So that's maybe why it doesn't make as much sense with the title being Let It Bleed. The cake in that was actually uh, baked by Delia Smith. There's a little nugget. No, of... <laughs> that's a very nice bit of information. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um... Is that the, that'd be the first and last time we mentioned Delia Smith on the James Bond A to Z podcast? Be, you it? say that, I'm sure it's going to crop up sometime again. <laughs> when it comes up again, we'll, we'll sound the klaxon. <laughs> she, she did the catering for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's another iconic thing that he's created. 
that that is f- fantastic. Which is which is why this is quite sad. This bit. Um, his last project was a car, uh, for a, uh, somebody called uh, Dick Davidson, who was a friend of his from New York, who was creating some uh, peace posters. And uh, BJ created one with uh, the Ace of Spade playing cards, um, which is, and I didn't know this, known as the Death Card. And then he signed it off, uh, love BJ. So people, basically the comments on that where he was saying, is death the ultimate peace? And then perhaps it, it led to a foreshadowing because uh, sadly he died only four weeks later uh, mm. of a heart attack in London in 1970. <laughs> So that cut short his his career, and who who knows where it would have gone? I mean, he missed out on the seventies and eighties, and you know, he could have done some uh, some incredible work. You you would imagine, yeah, especially with the sort of stuff he was doing. What's that? 50, yeah. 55 then was he or forty five? Forty five. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So well, he yeah. left a great legacy, though, didn't he? Yeah, fantastic legacy. Yeah. And and his website is is really it's really great. It's, it's really so worth reading, yeah. And having yeah. a look through, I was desperate to buy his book after reading all about it, but um, yeah, sold out. Yeah, but, yeah. It's definitely worth a look. Yeah, yeah. I think I think um, I always when I think about like Brown John creating these title sequences back in the sixties. They didn't have any technology or anything, so look, it must have been a really nice process because you could just. It was just ingenuity, wasn't it? He just mm. used a projector and on people. Nobody ever thought of that before. There was no precedence for it. There was no tool to do that. You just you just came up with cool ideas and then did them. It's definitely not a. It's not as exciting these days as it as it sounded like it was back then. Just just using anything you could. Same with like Disney films and stuff. The way that they did things was just really yeah. clever. I'm blown. Mm. Yeah, all, all practical, isn't it? And it sort of adds yeah. to the adds to the the weight, doesn't it, of the the whole yeah. thing. Well, Robert Brown, John. We salute you. B is for Bullock, Jeremy Bullock. Now, Jeremy Bullock, uh, Jeremy Andrew Bullock, is he's kind of a, a, a interesting character that sits within the, the Bond world. And I won't, uh, I'm not going to be talking about his actual work in Bond. I'm just going to go through uh, his who he is and, and what he's been doing. But um, his career is he's he's one of these actors that is really quite famous but not for being famous he's famous for characters that don't quite you you wouldn't know it's him uh but if you saw the character you instantly know who who he is uh or who the character is he was born in um in february 1945 um he actually died last year in in december um he's an english actor who uh his his career is massive he's like a child actor from the age of i don't know about seven or so i know 10 it says here um, and he appeared in several Disney films, British sitcoms, loads of different plays. Um, uh, and at uh, age 12, he got his first kind of major role, which was in a breakfast cereal commercial. Not not sure what commercial that was. Uh, his his filmography and his TV highlights is is enormous. And I actually had to go through and because a lot of it's so old, I'd never even heard of it. So it was quite interesting going through, through and seeing what these these programs were. His first regular role was in the 1960s on a tv series called counter-attack which follows it's like it's a bit like enid blyton and it follows these these children a group of three children during german occupation of the channel islands during world war ii which sounds pretty cool you these kind of whenever whenever we research these characters and find out these things they're doing you look at these concept ideas and you think that's amazing if that was around now, like they'd somebody created a show about that, everyone would be like, "That's brilliant!" In the Channel Islands during the occupation, um, yeah, I, I get excited about these things. Um, but that is it is a very old show. Uh, he's been in loads of television series. He's in uh, Doctor Who, uh, Robin of Sherwood, which is the the nineteen eighties series. Uh, he was in Summer Holiday with Cliff Richard. Uh, he's in The Professionals, and then later in his career, after his kind of main bulk, he was in uh, a few things, Spooks. Doctors, Law and Order, UK, which I've never seen. But the the biggest role that he's probably ever done is Boba Fett in Star Wars. And now you see why I'm saying you know who he is, but you probably don't know the the actual his face. Uh, he's in obviously this is. I don't, I don't know why you're not doing this one, Butler, because 
for the listeners, Butler is obsessed with Star Wars, and <laughs> and I'm not that bothered about it. So, um, hey, I was. He, he, he probably. He probably knows everything off by heart that I'm going to say, but he's uh, he's in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi as, as Boba Fett, the bounty hunter. And according to Toby Hadoki, do you know who this guy is? No. I didn't know who he was either. I think he's like a, a, a comedy journalist type person, but he anyway, he's been quoted as saying that his precise body language and smouldering presence were integral to the character's appeal. I don't particularly agree with that. I, I don't. Th- I don't think Boba <laughs> Fett in those two films is particularly smouldering. Well, look, he's um, an iconic character. Um, yeah, but how much of that is costume? How much of that is actor? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it, I, I think he's good. I think Boba Fett's one of the most interesting characters in in Star Wars. But um, I never never thought he was smouldering. I mean. He's, <laughs> got a mask on most of the time, or all the time. All the, um, time. The, the voice of the character, though, was played by um, uh, Jason Wingreen uh, originally, and in the updated versions, he was dubbed again by Tamura Morrison. Yeah. I didn't know that. Who plays him dubs. in um, The Mandalorian. Ah, yes. Okay, so, so, so it had consistency with the, the prequel trilogy. Yeah. Bullock's half-brother, Robert Watts, uh, he was working for an, as an associate producer for and The Empire Strikes Back, was tasked with finding someone who would basically fit into the costume of, of Boba Fett. So that this is essentially why he got the role. He just needed someone who'd fit into this costume that they created. So he called Bullock and he went to see the wardrobe supervisor and gave him he got the costume and it, it took 20 minutes to put on, but it fit and he got the role. Because really, he's not speaking. He, they just wanted somebody who, who could fit the, fit the, <laughs> fit the costume. He also, interestingly, played a minor role as an Imperial officer later identified as Lieutenant Shekel. I don't know. I don't know who that is. He, he grabs Leo when she, she warns Luke Skywalker of Vader's trap and the Empire Strikes Back. But apparently, because they couldn't get somebody to play that role, they had to get someone... Because Boba Fett and this character are in the same scene. So they had to get someone else to play Boba Fett because he was playing this this character. So what? in that scene, he's you can see Boba Fett the character who's playing, the actor who's played him, but it's not Boba Fett. <laughs> really interesting. So it was, it was a man called uh, John Morton who played Boba Fett in that scene, uh, who also played rebel pilot Dak Ralter in the Battle of Hoth. <laughs> I think you got down a rabbit hole here, mate. <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't, I, as I, I'll just rephrase this. I don't really like Star Wars. So going, going through this was uh, was a bit of a struggle. So anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll finish going through the, the details of, of his Star Wars career. But he um, in 2004, he, he published a limited edition memoir called Flying Solo, uh, which actually sounds quite interesting. Apparently, it's quite a funny, humorous account of his personal and professional life intersped with his tales from the convention circuit, which is... As you imagine, something that he did quite a lot of after after the, the Star Wars years finished. Um, but he did actually come back in 2005 for his first film, uh, first time in 22 years, where he portrayed Captain Jeremot Colton in uh, Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, I was going to say Revenge of the Sith. Was... Yeah, which is interesting. And then... Um, He's yeah, so he's he's always doing kind of he's all over the place. He's very he was very very popular on the circuit, obviously because Boba Fett's such a big character. Wow, Star he's Wars, um, Doctor Who, and and James Bond. I mean, yeah, he ticks all the boxes, doesn't, doesn't he? Doesn't the it? big three, yeah. the big three, <laughs> <laughs> the big three. Well, Butler's big three. Um, yeah, so that's that. So so that that's what he did outside of his Bond career. But um, let's go through and talk about what he did within his Bond career. Yeah, so the first James Bond uh, brush with James Bond was in the 1977 film The Spy Who Loved Me. He plays a character called A.C. Andrews in that film. And Andrews is a crewman on the uh, Royal Navy submarine, the HMS Ranger. And that's one of the Britain's four nuclear submarines. And he is, if you, we watched this recently, I think weekly, but yeah, he, he's one of the guys who's playing chess in the mess hall when the vessel begins to, when the boat begins to oh, shake, yeah. the submarines begins to shake and the submarine systems are being jammed by Stromberg's super tanker. The Ranger then is forced to the surface. It is then swallowed by the super tanker and Andrews uh, is one of the prisoners on the board, on board the ship until James Bond rescues them. And there he's part of that insurrection that James Bond leads on, on, um, on the ship. There's really not much more to say about his involvement in the film than that. Apparently, he was on set for a week, um, so he would have yeah. been on the the huge Ken Adam Super Tanga set that we've talked about many times. 
uh, one of the iconic Bond sets, right? And in an interview, he was asked about Roger um, and he said, I thought he was a very good Bond because he has a great twinkle in his eyes and a wonderful sense of humour. And I heartily agree. Um, (laughs) But that wouldn't be... It's funny, isn't it? Spy Who Loved Me seems like this sort of... Uh, everything always seems to come back to Spy Love Me. It seems like the point in the whole Bond series where all of these people converged <laughs> and there's just so many <laughs> elements to it. It's Spy Love Me gets mentioned so much in this podcast above anything else. Yeah. Which isn't a bad thing. And I'll be talking about it again in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't his uh, only brush with Bond, right? No, because he came back again during the Roger Moore years as as a as Smithers, who is uh, who was Q's sort of helper uh, in Q Branch. So he made his first appearance as Smithers in Fear Eyes Only. When Bond arrives at Q Branch, Smithers and Q are in the middle of testing an arm cast. If you remember this one, which flips out yeah. and crushes the head of a dummy. Um, so it's a very it's short a swing scene. out or something. Yeah. It's ridiculous, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? It's, it just serves no purpose. Absolutely not. But then yeah. none of these sort of scenes did, did they? They were just sort of gags, visual they gags. They got increased. Towards the end of the Roger era, they got increasingly. Like there's some of the stuff that the gadgets did would be easier to do yourself without a gadget. Yes. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, in the next film, so in Octopussy as well, bit bit more of a meteor role in this one. So after the auction of the Fabergé egg, Smithers is seen driving a London black cab, tailing Camille Khan. So he gets the nod from Bond, and then he uh, he drives off and tails him. And then later on, when they're in India, uh, the Q Branch workshop, he is seen testing a spiked doorway, which is activated by uh, uh, the, the knocker using a, a fishing line, yeah. which then triggers the device and crushes the dummy. So Smithers clearly has something against dummies because he's forever destroying them. And, well, and that's you it, really. You want to put him in the film Mannequin. <laughs> no, he'd go wild. <laughs> Um, and that's that's it. It's pretty short, short but sweet forays into into Bond again. And he said, "I remember the great fun we all had being on in a Bond film. It was work, but you felt like a little boy having the time of your life." So it's pretty nice, isn't it? And then, as you as you said earlier, he died uh, last year, seventeenth uh, of December, uh, from mm. complications of Parkinson's. But wonder, what a rich gets, career! Yeah, I wonder if he uh, gets a lot of. Um, kind of attention on the on or did get attention on the comp- the the circuit for the Bond stuff or it was primary. I imagine it Star Wars was the big one. Yeah, but if you look online, the signed photos of him are a pl- are a plenty. Like mm. Uh, mm. as yeah. as Smithers and as Andrews, it's crazy. Yeah. That convention yeah. circuit is mad. You, you uh, could imagine he could just uh, keep going from stand to stand, couldn't he? Just keep doing it. Yeah. That's a film in itself, it. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> B is for Bunt, Irma Bunt. So in the history of Bond, there's certain female henchmen that have really made a big impact on on the kind of history of Bond. And there's the, the majority of the really kind of important ones probably exist in the earlier Sean Connery days because you've got Rosa Klebb, but you've also got Irma Bunt, who's the kind of... I read in a lot of places that she's she's kind of a copy of of Rosa Klebb, but I don't think she is. I think she's a bit, a little bit more of a, a a different or a complex character than just saying she's a she's a evil henchwoman. She does a lot more. Um, she she obviously works for Blofeld in an Unimagined Secret Service. Um, she is the character that acts as the kind of chaperone or the, the the lady that's in charge of the angels of death so she's looking after them making sure that they do what they're told you know sitting with with them at dinner and all that kind of stuff and and she's the probably the main person that really has an impact on George Lazenby's character in in in, uh, in that film so she is uh, in, she was played by uh, Ilse Steppat who is a, a German actress who and this was her only ever English speaking part. She only she all her other all her other work, work was German, which is quite interesting. So all of her scenes largely take place in in Piz Gloria, as do the majority of the scenes in that film. She's a dis- disciplinarian, um, and she's basically throughout the whole film, she's basically just trying to stop 
bond fraternizing with these these women that's her job she's like a matron who's who's trying <laughs> trying to stop that happen um but there's it's, it's, she's quite a good character and it's not often that bond has this sort of really close relationship with a with a villain and there's a lot of like funny kind of she, even that, with rosa Klebb, i don't think he ever had any funny chats with her or made any jokes about her but there's a lot of comments in that they're at, when they're at dinner and he he subtly insults her all the time when um i think there's one where he tells her because obviously he's a genealogist and he does tells you where you're from and, and all that kind of stuff he says that her name comes from a nautical word for the baggy swollen part of a sail <laughs> um although in the in the novel he actually tricks her into thinking that she's a duchess so she has a little bit more of a involved role there. But her role changes quite a lot. So she doesn't do a lot in terms of henchman type stuff throughout the majority of the film. She's just a matronly character that's kind of looking after these women. But she's the one that kills Tracy at the end of the film and, and uh, in the car. So you see her with the machine gun shooting, shooting Tracy. And she, interestingly, Bond just wants to get revenge against Blofeld. He doesn't, he never mentions getting re- revenge against against her for for what she did she now in the reason for that is that she died i think four days after the movie was released the international release of on a magic secret service oh, and wow. she was meant to be in diamonds are forever uh, in 1971 mm-hmm. which you can imagine would be quite quite interesting to have those two characters carry on and, and you've got those two but because she died four days after she actually got to see the movie which is which is interesting uh, and quite lucky but um, they just removed her from uh, Dimes Are Forever, uh, which is a bit sad. But it's a good job they didn't recast her, really, because I think that would have been a very messy situation for that film. She, I'm not, I won't go into the films that she's been in because they're all German and I can't pronounce them. But um, <laughs> her voice was extensively used for dubbing Hollywood stars, uh, in particular Lana Turner. So that was quite a big. I, I always, whenever I go and visit. I've got family in Spain, and when I go and visit, and they they have English films on and dubbed in Spanish, I always think, is this who is who is who are the people that do these dubbings? And mm-hmm. uh, she's she's kind of one of them. She she just she plays Lana Turner in every Lana Turner film that's released in in Germany, and, and does the dubbing for it. So people in Germany think Lana Turner's voice is is this is this lady's. So I did, there was not a lot really about her. If you kind of she, she died. Qu- quite a long time ago in 1969 there's not really a lot of information about it but one one thing i did find is that uh according to director peter hunt he said not only did they uh this is talking about the angels of death and and the actors that played them not only did they all get on very well but they all adored isla stepat who played irma bunt and she adored them all too which is a nice little mm. if, if you're going to find a quote and I, I, that was just a, a random quote i found somewhere it wasn't any interviews or anything i could get but um yeah important character yeah, she's she's really great in that film, isn't she? Um, she works so well with this Blofeld, doesn't she? With with Telly Savalas's Blofeld, you especially can't imagine because yeah, she's you like can't the... imagine her working with Donald Pleasance or anyone like that. She's just that their their two characters just work off each other so well, and he you kind of like see he just leaves her in charge. He doesn't want to get involved with all of that stuff. She's she's good enough to do that, but they never they're just like a seamless partnership, especially when the two are sat in a car at the end together you almost get the sense that she's there to protect the angels from blofeld as well because he's quite a sexy blofeld isn't he this isn't the first time you've mentioned this. <laughs> <laughs> sexy blofeld <laughs> but yeah, yeah i just get the sense that he's she's there just as much for the safety of the uh, of the angels as um to yeah. protect them from bond as and from blofeld yeah she's well, i think she's quite com- com- a complex character there are different you could probably yeah think that way that she's she's not just a henchman she's actually she's protecting them in some ways and she's she i mean she's protecting them against hillary bray um bond but you don't really know why is she, is she just bothered that about him trying to pull him or is does she is it because he's a spy who knows but then she does kill tracy so she's uh probably not as nice as she could be b is for burgess anthony burgess Born John Anthony Burgess Wilson is a writer and composer, uh, born 1917, died 1993. Best known um, for his, uh, the book A Clockwork Orange. That's his, his best known novel, but known as a comic writer. So his connection to James Bond uh, is, 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 is a soul, is, is one single instance where in, um, 
1977, he was approached by Cubby Broccoli to write the screenplay for The Spy Who Loved Me, um, interestingly. So coming back to Spy Who Loved Me. Um, And interestingly, I was reading an article written by Anthony Burgess about James Bond, published in 1987, around the 25th anniversary of Bond. And so he gives a huge interview, or sorry, he's, he's written in the first person, this huge account of his involvement with Bond. So I'll be drawing a lot on that. But the interview's online, you can find it, I think it's with um, Life magazine. But it was written, and it's got this amazing picture of Timothy Dalton on... Um, uh, with a um, Aston Martin, the the Vantage. Um, anyway, that's by the by. Talking about his connection to Bond, Anthony Burgess said, um, even I, the last writer in the world to be thought of in connection with bondage, was drawn into the scenerous net 10 years ago. I remember on Fifth Avenue being handed a portable typewriter and a sheaf of blank paper by Cubby Broccoli, the longtime series producer. And so I don't know if you know this, but um, when uh, The Spy Who Loved Me came out as a book, it was the 10th James Bond book. Uh, It's an experimental book. It's the one that's told from the Bond girl's point of view in the first half and then from the villain's point of view in the middle. And then Bond comes in right at the end. Bit of an experimental book. It was a bit of a flop when it came out as well. Um, so much, and there was a lot of backlash against it. Um, so much so that Fleming actually banned reprints, paperback editions, and actually forbade any adaptations of it ever being made. And it was only after Fleming's death that they were able to republish it as a paperback, which I, I didn't know. I thought it was quite oh, wow. interesting. Yeah. So when they were they were allowed to use the title, but not the story. And so this is where they brought a lot of different writers in to work on on Bond, and. So, yeah, so um, Anthony Burgess was approached. He said he was on a lecture tour of America at the time. So he just worked out his story. He said he hammered out the story in a series of holiday in bedrooms across America. And the story is is fascinating. And you'll probably be able to tell quite quickly why it wasn't chosen to be produced into the film. So the script was about an organization called Chaos. That's in capitals. A consortium for the hastening of the annihilation of organized society. And they were headed up by a, in his own words, a gross, awesome Wells type villain in a wheelchair whose mission is to humiliate the world and destroy the authority of its religious and civil establishments. So he's come up with these these bad guys for the for the spy who loved me. Uh, so actually, the plot is a bit Black, Mir- Black Mirror-esque. You remember the very first era episode of Black Mirror? Um, the pig and the prime minister one yes oh yeah he basically holds them holds a prime minister ransom and makes him do this uh, uh unlawful act shall we say with a pig um because the plot of the, uh, anthony burgess's spy who loved me they attempt to blackmail the pope into whitewashing the sistine chapel ceiling another one of his plots is to um the, the queen and all the commonwealth ministers are going to be blown up in the Sydney Opera House unless they cavort in in the nude in front of TV cameras. Mm. And then another part of the plot, there were bombs that were placed in the scars of people who had undergone appendix surgery in a Bavarian clinic. It's all very far-fetched, bizarre It sounds stuff. like raunchy Alan Partridge ideas. It doesn't it? Just reeling <laughs> off. Just, yeah. oh, they, they're nude, they're... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely mad. And actually, John Landis, who um, came in, uh, was who, who came in to work on it as well at the same time, said that um, he said that the, the script involved the Pope being kidnapped, which doesn't quite chime with what Anthony Burgess says. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of the Pope in it, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> talking about why the, the, the script wasn't used, Anthony Burgess said, my plot called on unbelievable technology. It asked for more nudity and frank sex than the Bond films could conceivably carry. As I foresaw, my script was rejected. But interestingly, the villain in his film used an oil tanker as a palace to transport himself around the world. And that idea of the oil tanker is the one thing of Anthony Burgess's script that remains in The Spy Who Loved Me. So obviously The Spy Who Loved Me eventually was written by um, Christopher Wood and Richard Maybaum. Um, and like I said, John Landis had a go as well. And if you want to read about John Landis's script, um, Mark Edlitz's book, The Many Lives of James Bond, covers it in, in great detail. It's a really interesting read. But yeah, that's Anthony Burgess, who, who remained 
to the end of his life a huge James Bond fan and, and if you can find that Life magazine article I'd recommend reading it he, he writes very lucidly about Bond and his sort of feeling was that the films lost their way when they started having to deviate away from Ian Fleming which um, you know you can agree with or you can disagree with but uh, he, he makes a lot of valid points Anthony Burgess B is for Butterworth Jeremy Butterworth but better known as Jez Butterworth. He was born in March 1969. He's an English playwright, screenwriter and film director. So he was born in London and his his brother, one of his brothers, Steve, is a producer and he collaborates with his other brothers, Tom and John Henry. They're writers as well. So a lot of his work, he has, has, has involved them. So he, his first play... Mojo is how he came to prominence because it won won the Olivier Award, an Evening Standard Award, Writers Guild Award, and the Critics Circle Award. And then he went on to write and direct the adaptation, the film adaptation of Mojo as well. So that's that's how he made his name. And then he's done a lot of work at the Royal Court Theatre since then. There's done a lot of plays. Notably, The Ferryman opened in Royal Court Theatre in April 2017, which was directed by Sam Mendes, and it became the fastest-selling Royal Court Theatre show in their history. Mm-hmm. It's set in uh, rural Derry in 1981 and focuses on the events uh, that surrounded the deaths of the IRA hunger strikes. Uh, interesting that it was an English writer that wrote that. Um, yeah. So, in terms of his, his uh, entrance into Bond, he made uncredited contributions to Skyfall. That was his first initial uh, foray into Bond, um, where he was brought in to polish the script and just give final flourishes. And then, again, for Spectre, Sam Mendes brought him in. So they collaborate quite a lot. Uh, he brought him in this uh, again this time, handed him the, the script that had been created, and he, he had many meetings with Sam Mendes and Daniel Craig, back and forth, visiting Pinewood to have a go at the rewrite. So he he considered that his changes involved adding what he would like to see if he was a teenager watching it. And he limited the scenes with Bond talking to men. He said, Bond shoots other men. He doesn't sit around chatting to them. So you put a line through that. I don't necessarily agree with that because one of the best scenes is actually in Goldfinger when he sat having a conversation with him. So I'd it's agree. Yeah. quite quite interesting that he that's that's his view and well, it's going to be a pretty rubbish film if he d- doesn't talk to any men just shoot them all <laughs> yeah M straight in <laughs> <laughs> um so that's yeah so he's he's basically just added little bits to to the, both of those scripts that's his work uh, with Bond other notable film work so he wrote co-wrote Edge of Tomorrow if you remember that. Yeah, my uh, parents love that film. I think it's the best film ever made. Really? I don't know why. Well, that confused me because it had sort of two titles, didn't it? Live, Die, Repeat. Yeah. Live, Die, Repeat, yeah. Yeah. Confusing. A Japanese um, title is All You Need Is Kill. There you go. Fun <laughs> fact for you. I like that. That's quite good. That yeah. It's based on a comic book, I think. That's, what it, that's the original comic book. don't know why I remember that. He also co-wrote Black Mass. Remember that with Johnny, uh, Johnny Depp. Johnny yep. Depp. Yep. Ford versus Ferrari. That's a great movie. Proper dad and, movie, that. Uh, upcoming film Cruella. Ah, the Disney which one. I, yeah. So, but yeah, that's that's it. So he's, he's only a small part to play, but it's hard to know what, you know, because obviously they're not candid about what changes he did make, but it would be interesting. Maybe they were like long conversations with uh, Blofeld and Bond that were just gone because like no they're not sitting chatting get rid of it (laughs) (laughs) so yeah that's Jez Butterworth so now we come to the the part of today's podcast which is the addendum section and this is the area where we when we're doing our research for all of these podcasts we often come across things that we didn't originally think to add 
uh, either through discussing them and realising that there's quite an important person to add in or just because they haven't cropped up until now. So uh, as we find these, we'll add them on and we'll lump them into an addendum section. But as listeners, if there's anything you, you think we've missed and we should be covering that there's a massive oversight on our parts, let us know at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk and we'll take a look and uh, see if we agree. So on with the addendum. Yep, so this is one we're missing from the letter A, and it's A is for Arkand, Michel Arkand. He is a Canadian film editor, and he edited the film Tomorrow Never Dies with his wife, Dominique Fortin. Giving these French pronunciations, because I assume that they're French. Um, (laughs) um, Sorry, you're better than uh, Brendan doing them. Yeah. (laughs) So he's a Canadian film editor. His wife is also Canadian. I think they may have met on this film, actually, on Tomorrow Never Dies, but... Uh, so talking about it, uh, Michelle Arcand, because obviously that film is directed by Roger Spottiswood and he is also Canadian. I met director Roger Spottiswood in Los Angeles where he was working on a pilot with ed- editor Dominique Fortan. Soon after that, they were working together on another show when Roger got the job on Tomorrow Never Dies. Dominique came aboard and she brought me on board to co-edit and she is now my wife. So Tomorrow Never Dies was the first huge movie for Dominique and myself, and there are a lot of expectations. And actually, when you look at their um, sort of back catalogue together, they had not really directed, uh, edited huge movies like this before. They'd done sort of smaller Canadian productions, but this was a massive, massive job. And actually, it's quite interesting because Tomorrow Never Dies was rushed through post-production to meet the the release date. Um, It was the first Bond film to be edited digitally. And so it was the first time that two editors were able to concurrently edit a film together. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously quite a good dynamic husband and wife team to, to get that through. Talking about it, he said, there's no limit to what you could achieve. If I cut a sequence and needed a shot, they'd just bring someone in to draw it up and shoot it. It was the first time I'd worked on a film with no budget limit. And talking about the film's... He said that they're fantasy films and people just love fantasy. The Bond films have always been fun, but with a little bit of a dark side. They're like children's films for adults, which I guess you can kind of agree with. Not much more to say about that, um, but uh, Spottiswood and Arkand reunited on the Arnie film, Sixth Day. What a film. What a film. (laughs) Uh, B is for Baird, Stuart Baird. Um, Stuart Baird is an English film editor, producer and director. He's mainly deals with action films. Um, he's edited over 20 in his career. So his journey into Bond, he'd worked with Martin Campbell uh, on The Legend of Zorro. And Martin Campbell was then going on to direct Casino Royale in 2006. So he brought a number of um, crew on board and including that was Stuart Baird. Um, so they started working together and prepping the visual effects during the actual shoot. So Stuart Baird tends to get involved quite heavily even during the shoot uh, and throughout the whole production process. Baird focused on on this particular one, on making the poker games as exciting as possible because obviously it dominates quite quite a large chunk of the movie. He said, I spent a lot of time cutting them down, tightening the timing. I was surprised how well it comes off with the audience. The action sequence were different because the plan was to not have any unbelievable over-the-top sequences. What I liked about the action sequences were there was a consequence at the end of each one. I think it illustrates my craft as well as anything I've done. I love doing what I do. Then he returned again for Skyfall and when he met Sam Mendes, Stuart Baird explained uh, the way he works. So he doesn't have the director in the, uh, in the edit suite at all with him apart from in the, in the screening room. He said, I have a 12-foot screen in my editing suite, but basically I like to cut it without any interference. So 12-foot screen. Imagine that. Nice. (laughs) So, yeah, he edited arguably the two better, Daniel Craig. Definitely. That's probably why they got him back for for Skyfall. So he's got a number of credits. Like he's, He's done a lot. He also directed three films. The most well-known is Star Trek Nemesis. So I've not seen it, but he directed that. And he was promoted from editor to director. Which one's Nemesis? Is that the... Tom Hardy. Romulans. Yeah, I see. He edited Superman in 1978, which he was nominated an Academy Award for. Lethal Weapon, Guerrillas in the Mist. Oh, very nice. Lethal Weapon 2, Die Hard 2. 
Good editing. Yeah, Demolition Man, Maverick. Demolition Man, you should have started with that. <laughs> I'm doing it chronologically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vantage Point, Edge of Darkness, Green Lantern. Should have started with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> no? <laughs> um, most recently, Tomb Raider in 2018. Um, so, yeah, very extensive, long career. That's Stuart Baird. Very good. B is for Baker, George Baker. George Baker's a, an interesting choice for the collection. He's another one of these actors that is just, he's done so much. He, if you look at a picture of him, you'll you'll think, I know him. You won't know where what, what he's from, probably, because he's he plays so many kind of smaller parts in dozens and dozens of, of shows across his career. He's an English actor and writer. He's best known for portraying Tiberius in I, Claudius. And interestingly, George R.R. R. Martin... Song of Ice and Fire fame. Um, who, uh, it later said that he uh, his performance in Tiberius, uh, as Tiberius, in particular, was part of the inspiration for his character Stannis Baratheon. Interesting. So, that, so that's a nice uh, tidbit of information for you there. Uh, he was born in Bulgaria. Um, he's been in loads of big things. He's in the Dam Busters, the ship that died of shame with Richard Attenborough. He there's loads of films he's in. Uh, most of his kind of big films are around the fifties. So. I don't know a lot of them, but um, they're meant to be quite good. Uh, one of them is The Curse of the Fly, which uh, I've never seen, but one of the later prequels to the original film. He's perhaps best known, however, for his TV work. He was in, uh, he played Inspector Wexford in the Ruth Rendell Mysteries, which most people will probably nowadays remember him for. It's a pretty big role. Uh, he was also in the first episode of Some Others Do Have Them as a, a company boss interviewing uh, Frank Spencer. Uh, he, he played a big role in Coronation Street, Cecil Newton, Doctor Who, uh, Midsummer Murders, The Goodies at Pompeii. Yeah, just loads and loads of stuff. His list, his list is enormous. But in the James Bond films, he's he's got quite an interesting history with Bond. He he was in You Only Live Twice as a NASA engineer, uncredited. But that then led on to him becoming a fairly significantly more important character in On a Magic Secret Service, where he plays the actual Sir Hilary Bray. Um, so he's in he's in at the start of the film, where Bond goes to meet him to kind of work out who he is and how to copy him. And then later, and this is I I mentioned this to you the other day, um, that he actually still voices Hilary Bray when Bond's pretending to be him. Because um, Lazenby's impression was, just wasn't good enough. <laughs> so um, so that's his actual voice, which I'd never realised. I always but, thought it sounded a bit funny, but now, yeah. Well, with those old films, because the dubbing is often off anyway, I didn't, didn't really put two and two together, but I didn't realise it was a different person. I thought it was just Lazenby in a, in a room redubbing it maybe a, like you know a few weeks after he'd filmed it all but no it's it's him doing it uh an interesting bit of trivia which isn't so much tri- trivia more of a kind of a view on his character is that throughout um on a magic secret service it's implied that sir henry bray doesn't like women and they it met they mentioned this quite a few times and even a couple of the angels of death think that he, he's not into women and then and then later on it's and that's why they're so surprised that Bond is into women, and th- some people have said that this is actually the f- he's the first like gay character that's been in Bond. Uh, you'll, you'll, obviously, Winton Kidd come in in Diamonds Are Forever, but he he may well be the first suggestion of that. Oh, male gay character, of course. You've got the suggestion of um, Pussy Galore as well. Just thought that was an interesting fact that people people talk about. Um, in he's then in The Spy Who Loved Me with a with a much larger uh, role. Back to Spy, I love me again. <laughs> um, he plays Captain Benson, and he's a British nuclear submarine staff officer. And he's in his his big scene is he's in a, he's in a meeting with MQ, Admiral Hargreaves, and Sir Frederick Grey and James Bond, where they have a big discussion about what's what's going on. Interestingly, Ian Fleming considered Baker to be the ideal candidate to play James Bond in the films, mm. uh, but the role went to Sean Connery because Baker had other commitments. Yeah, interesting. Which is a very very interesting scenario, and I, I think if you look at you quite often hear about Ian Fleming's view of who Bond should be, and you you do get the the feeling that he he wanted somebody who was more real. Like you'd actually, if you look at um, Baker, he just looks like a a normal tough bloke. He's not like he's not like a model. He's not like an actor like um like Roger Moore or or, or Sean Connery. Um, and and Ian Fleming, you kind of think that he, that's what he had in his head when he was doing this, but. 
yeah, never never happened. And then Sean Connery got it. He he's an MBE as well, and he was made that was for some charitable work helping establish a youth club in his home village. It's quite interesting. Uh, he died on 7th of October 2011 at the age of 80 of pneumonia after a stroke. So yeah, pretty um, yeah, one of those characters that you know just sits in the Bond history Footnotes, in so many interesting ways. Interesting addendum, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there we go. B is also for Bates, Bert Bates. He is a film editor, an English film editor, um, born in uh, in London. He is uh, connected to the James Bond film because he edited Diamonds Are Forever and Live and Let Die. Uh, they're actually his last two credits and he died in 1976, age 68. Uh, he was co-editor on Diamonds Are Forever with John Holmes and our co-editor on Live and Let Die with Raymond Poulton and John Shirley. Uh, obviously, he was quite old when he did these films, but actually he's, he, he'd worked on over 60 films throughout his career. Some of his notable credits uh, include a film called The Ringer in 1952, and this is Guy Hamilton's directorial debut. So that hence the connection. Guy Hamilton obviously directed those two Bond films, Diamonds Are Forever and Live and Let Die. So he, he worked a lot with Guy Hamilton throughout his career, also worked a lot with Carol Reed. He directs. Uh, so he he edited 1969's Battle of Britain, a Guy Hamilton film produced by Harry Saltzman. He um, edited 1964's Shot in the Dark, the Pink Panther movie, and 1949's Under Capricorn, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. So glittering mm. career, and yeah, came that came to an end uh, editing two two James Bond films. So that's Burt Bates. B is also for Biddle, Adrian Biddle. Born in England in 1952. Biddle started his career on the 1969 Bond film on A Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, he was an uncredited second unit assistant camera operator. So that was his first role. And then moving forward, he um, started to work for Ridley Scott with through his company RSA, working on commercials and just sort of learning his trade. He was then promoted on Alien and he became... Ridley Scott's focus puller. And he used to say that he learned about lighting from being stuck on a crane with Ridley Scott for hours while the director set the shots up. Ridley Scott then uh, introduced Adrian to James Cameron. So he then worked on the sequel to Alien um, and as a director of photography this time. So he'd learned all those skills throughout his career with Ridley Scott and then he'd sort of made that big leap and the one of the techniques in aliens with the machine guns you know the the flashing that was revolutionary at the time that was his idea and now now it's just it's second fiddle you see it all the time but that that was something that was new that no one had seen before and then 30 years later after a rich and varied career he came back to bond as a cinematographer on the world is not enough so He'd really went away and and learnt, you know, thirty years, come back and, yeah. and work on the world is not you enough. You hope they didn't say to him before that, come back in thirty years when you've <laughs> you've learnt enough. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, other other notable work. Uh, he worked with Pierce Brosnan again in two thousand and four on Laws of Attraction. He was also a cinematographer on Thelma and Louise, Event Horizon, The Mummy, Reign of Fire. And his last work was V for Vendetta. In 2005, he sadly had a heart attack uh, at the age of 54 and he passed away. In 2015, Shepperton renamed their preview theatre the Adrian Biddle Preview Theatre. Ah, oh, interesting. In, in, in honour of his, uh, his career, which is very extensive. Very, very good career. Yeah. Adrian Biddle. So that brings our addendum to an end and this episode to an end. Thank you for listening. The next episode, as we teased, is a special episode. Oh, God, I can't wait. You can't can't see Brendan Dove here, but he's shaking with with excitement. (laughs) It's a special episode because it's going to be a Piers Brosnan special. So we're going to be covering his four Bond films and yeah, can't wait. So the first special we've done on, on, on a Bond actor, 
And yeah, we want your input. If you have anything you want to say um, about Piers Brosnan, which is your favourite Brosnan film, what your favourite Brosnan moment is, please email the show on podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk or you can get us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at jamesbondatoz. Uh, but we would love to have your input. Um, as always, please leave us a review where you're uh, listening to this podcast. We really appreciate your feedback. And yeah, I guess that's uh, that's it for t- this week's episode. Hmm. Thanks for listening. James Bond Ciao. will return. <laughs> that's my that's my catchphrase now. Mine's ciao. Isn't. Ciao. What's yours weekly? <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.